know, everybody needs a good push to help them to get up the steep hills and mountains of life. Would you agree with that statement? And when we come to this book to study the book of Nehemiah, we're going to find a group of people that needed a push. And I'll be honest with you, when you look at the, the city of Jerusalem, the temple had been rebuilt. The walls were still in, in, in rubble. They had not been built back up. And it was a big deal because they faced a lot of obstacles. They had a lot of enemies that were around them that wanted to stop them from building the walls. There were enemies around Jerusalem that they wanted to discourage them in the rebuilding of those walls because as long as the walls were down, they were left unprotected, they were vulnerable. And when you come to the book of Nehemiah, God is gonna begin to move in the heart of this man to see the condition of his people. He begins to get a burden for the conditions that they were in because the fact was is that as long as the walls weren't rebuilt, they were susceptible to the enemy. And it's just a, a, a fantastic book. I've been reading through this book for the past month or so, just trying to gain wisdom from the life of Nehemiah. And I thought, you know what? I think I want to just, I want us to take some time to examine this book because I think it's so important for us as a people, as a church, to recognize how, much it, how important it is for us to gather around a vision. It's important for us to get on the same page. And what I love about Nehemiah is that when you go through this book, you can't help but notice that at every twist and turn throughout the book, Nehemiah is praying. I don't think that that's a coincidence. Every step of the way, every problem that he encountered, every obstacle that came across his way, he was a man of prayer. And if there's anything I'm convinced of as a church, it's the need for us to be gathered and united around the idea of praying for God's hand to be moving in our church. I would encourage you, you know, if you don't do it already, to take time daily to just pray that God would give us a burden and a vision so big that we have to trust him to do it. That's exactly what happens here is that this man, Nehemiah, he knew who he was. He was in a life of, in all honesty, he was in a life of, of luxury in a palace in Persia. And he comes across a situation that shakes him. It rattles him, it jars him into a sense of reality. Have you ever heard something and it just shakes you? You, you get a hold of some kind of news or some information. Maybe it's a, a family member. You, you hear that they're in the hospital or you get some news of a loved one that's passed away and it just, it causes you to pause and it causes you to stop where you're at. Well, Nehemiah in this book, he receives some news about the people that had made their return back to Jerusalem. And it causes him to pause. And not only that, but it causes him to weep. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I've always found the way you can get to know somebody, you know what's really important to them, is you ask the question of, what is it that they cry about? Have you ever noticed that if you know what people cry about, it's like these uh, Tennessee fans, right? I'm just joking. I'm just joking. All right. It's too early, too early. Ryan, you can't do that. I'm just joking. I'm sorry. You please forgive me. 
All right. It's, 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 no, it's like it's 100%. At least you got the Titans, right? I mean, they, they did really well today. I'm encouraging you guys today. All right. So the, the thing is you can know somebody by what they cry about. And Nehemiah, I want you to open up your Bibles, and I'm really going to, tonight my goal is this. Most of you, when you came to church tonight, you didn't know a whole lot about Nehemiah, right? I mean, maybe some of you have, you got a little bit of understanding, but really tonight I'm setting up the book. I want to get us prepared, and a lot of times you can't do that unless you know the history behind it. We're going to take some time to look back at the history that led up to this time. I'm going to give you kind of a brief overview, and it'll set us up for the following weeks as we get into this great book that'll challenge us in a lot of ways. But look at Nehemiah chapter 1, and let's look at the first four verses together. It says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came and he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And so notice, he's at the palace, he's in Shushan, that's the capital of Assyria. It's where the king's winter palace was at. And so as he's there and he's in the king's palace, he asks specifically his Jewish brethren, how are, how are our people doing that have returned? Now, just so you kind of have an idea in the back of your mind, is that as they had been held captive in Assyria, there was three different returns. The first one was led by a, name, a man named Zerubbabel. All right, he, uh, by the way, he came from the Messiah's lineage, by the way. He's, he's from the lineage of Christ, okay? Very important thing that when they would go back that the lineage of Christ would be protected, right? Zerubbabel, the very first man that went back that would become the governor, he was from the lineage of Christ. He led the first return. The second return was led by a man named Ezra. He led the second return. The third one was by Nehemiah. So notice that he asked about his brethren that are in Jerusalem. And I want you to see what happens. Look at verse three. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And notice his response to that. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Don't you love those words? When he heard the condition of his people, it caused him to stop. These were his brethren, his fellow countrymen, as they were trying to go back to Jerusalem to try to restore it back to the days of its former glory, back when the temple was there, back when God's presence was there, back when the days when the walls used to be built up and when God was using them and God was growing them as a country. His, his longing was to see that day happen again where the city would be restored again. And when he hears the news that the walls are still broken down, the people are still in a vulnerable spot. He can't help but stop and notice what he says. And it came to pass when he heard these words that he sat down and he wept. He cried. Why was he crying? It wasn't about walls, folks, although walls are important. It was about the people. His heart was burdened for his people. 
And notice that it says in the middle of all this, he sat down and he wept and he mourned certain days. This wasn't something that passed away in just one day. It was something that, it was, it was in his mind. He couldn't get away from it. He was remembering the fact of the condition of the people that they were in uh, and where they were at. And notice, and he fasted. He began to refuse to take food. As he began to pray and seek the God's face, that God, would you begin to work in our people again? Would you begin to move them and, and, and get them to, to come together to rebuild the walls like they used to be? Wow. And notice, and he prayed before the God of heaven. You see, it wouldn't be complete unless you recognize the fact he knew that the answer didn't lie in himself. He needed God to move on behalf of his people. You see, what godly leadership, is? it all starts with this. It starts with a burden. But just having a burden isn't enough, is it? It's good to see conditions. When you see the condition of our country, great, I hope you have a burden. When you see the condition of God's church, I hope you have a burden. But the fact of the matter is, we need more than just a burden. We need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's power. We need his hand to be moving and guiding and working in our lives, right? And so what he began to do is he began to pour out his heart in prayer, asking God to begin to work again, to move again, to rebuild the walls to its former days. Isn't that a great prayer? And so... What I want us to do is I've tried to give you a few verses to kind of identify who this man was. Nehemiah uh, was an incredible man. But I want us to look at the history of the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your chart, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to try to work our way through the history of Israel. Because if you're going to appreciate the book of Nehemiah, you have to know where they came from. And all of Israel's history stemmed from who? The greatest person that ever was in uh, Israel's history started with a man named Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. Uh, God had promised to make out of Abraham a great nation. You look back at Genesis chapter 12 and you remember that God made the promise, I want you to go out from here and from you I will bless all the nations of the earth. It was a fact that God was looking that one day all the nations would be blessed through the family line of who? Abraham. You imagine what that would have been like when God begins to unveil all of that to you? And when I, I always love the part where God tells Abraham to go out and look at the sky. And he says, you see all those stars? Your descendants are going to be even more than all of that. that. That took a lot of faith to believe especially as he got older and he still didn't have a child. He's like, God, what are you talking about? I, like, I don't even have one yet. Like, we, we haven't even, but the, the, the great thing is, is that he believed the Lord. Well, Israel really began to take prominence during the reign of their kings. You remember, they decided that they wanted to be like all the other nations. And so uh, this started off with King Saul and King David and then on to King Solomon. That's when they really rose to prominence. They built up their military. They began to, to, to build up their military to conquer other nations. But there was a time of compromise underneath the reign of Solomon. Solomon in his earlier, earlier years, he's, he was seeking the Lord, right? But because of his foreign wives, his heart began to drift from the Lord. And the Lord told him in 1 Kings chapter 11, I want to read this to you. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there if you want to. If not, it'll be up on the screens, I believe. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. I want you to hear this. 
He says, wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely rend the kingdom from you, and I'll give it to your servant. Notwithstanding in the days, I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I'll rend it out of the hand of thy son. So what happened? God tore the kingdom out of his family line's hand. He didn't do it to Solomon, but he did it to his son, to Rehoboam. The nation split underneath Rehoboam's lead. And what happened was is they divided into two nations. You'll see that on your chart. The 10 northern tribes were formed and they became what's known as Israel. Okay, they, uh, that was underneath the leadership of Jeroboam. And then the two southern tribes, they became formed as the nation of Judah. That was made up of two, two tribes. That is who? Judah and, anybody remember the other one? Benjamin. Okay, so they were formed the southern kingdom. Now, the thing that happened with them is that uh, the northern tribes really revolted from their former nation. They really decided what, where the northern kingdom really went wrong was in this. When they divided into two nations, the northern kingdom, they didn't want to send their people to the south to worship the Lord. I don't, you remember that? Because if they were going to go to Judah, what would happen? Maybe some of them would choose to stay. So what happened was, is Jeroboam came up with a plan that he was going to start their own form of worship. And really that was going to be the thing that made the northern kingdom go away from the Lord. So the northern kingdom had 19 kings. How many of them were good? None of them. They were all terrible. Horrible kings. Led the people into sin. And so God took them and had turned them over to Assyria. Assyria attacked them. The country of, uh, of Israel only lasted for 209 years. Not really that long. So they got carried off into judgment. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah had probably, depending on how you count it, had about 20 kings. And they had many good kings. Many, they had a few bad ones. But what had happened was is that uh, Judah had a number of wise, godly leaders that brought many revivals back to the people. Had been, uh, they had several of them that had caused revival to happen within the nation. But however, the kings of Judah, eventually they turned away from the Lord. And what happened was is that God began to punish them by the hands of who? The Babylonians. So Judah only lasted about 325 years. Okay, longer than Israel. They had better kings. They had, had times of revival, but because of their disobedience and worshiping idols, God chose to discipline them. You know, it's by God's grace that he does discipline. I feel like it's important to sometimes mention that. I think in our day, we, we sometimes look at, and you're like, you mean God's not going to give me what I want? No, he doesn't always give you what you want. I can remember as a kid, uh, my, my parents, I got in trouble. I'd done some stuff I wasn't supposed to. I tried to avoid the discipline by doing, not a very smart idea. I took a, a book and put it in my back of my pants, all right, so that when my dad would smack me, that I could maybe somehow avoid the pain from that. That was not the greatest move because when you hit a book with a belt, you know what noise that makes? Yeah. That does not sound like a backside, all right? And so I tried to avoid the discipline, but the thing is, is that, hey, 
that discipline was unavoidable. And that, that discipline was going to help me learn a very valuable lesson. And listen, folks, when God used the hands of the Babylonians to bring his judgment on Judah, there was a very valuable lesson that they desperately needed to learn. You know, one of the greatest things about being a New Testament believer is that when God disciplines you, what does that mean? He loves you. Another thing that it means for you is this. You belong to him. The Bible in the New Testament says over and over again that God, he rebukes, he disciplines every child that belongs to him. And listen, folks, because Israel and because Judah were so valuable in God's sight, he reached the point where he said, that's enough. And he allowed these other nations to come in and conquer them. Now, I want to read to you what happened. If you'll turn in your Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and I promise you, we're getting to the book of Nehemiah. We're right there. We're at the cusp, okay? Second Chronicles chapter 36. Some of you guys are like, man, a history lesson. I was horrible at history. I loved history, by the way. I mean, love, like it helps you be able to understand, put the pieces together. But look here, Second Chronicles chapter 36. I want you to see, look at verses 17 through 20. When God used the Babylonians to come in and to begin to discipline them, I want you to see what happened. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 17 through 20. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon the young man or maiden. Old man and him that stooped for age, he gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of all of his princes, and all of those that he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and they break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. When Babylon came in, what did they leave behind? Nothing. No more temple, no more walls. Your people are carried off into captivity. You imagine the feelings and the emotions of all these people as everything was lost. It's meant to show them the... Sin has consequences, right? When you choose to venture away and turn your back on the Lord, God disciplines. And they got carried away for 70 years into Babylon, all right? And eventually they would land up in Persia. It's over 800 miles away that they were taken. God shifted the balance of the powers because the Babylonians, they were an evil people. You recognize that, right? Well, the way that they would treat people, it was very cruel. And it would have been very easy for the Jewish people to cry out, God, how can you be just when you use a pagan people to carry us off into captivity? They're as evil as, they're more evil than we are. And so what God begins to do is he works and moves. He changes the balance of powers. He changes it from the Babylonians over into the Persians' hands. And this is where it gets interesting. Because underneath the Persians, God would begin to have mercy and compassion on the people again through the hands of the Persians. This is where it gets good, folks. I hope that you'll clue in and just follow this part. It's fantastic display of God's sovereignty. 
while they're in the hands of the Persians, there was a valuable, valuable prophecy that was made by Isaiah. 150 years before there was ever a King Cyrus in Persia, there was the prophet Isaiah that named the guy that would be the king of Persia 150 years before he was ever born and said, this is the man that's going to free God's people, that's going to allow them to go back into their land and would allow them to rebuild their walls, to rebuild the temple, to get it back going towards the former glory days. Can you imagine that? Opening up God's word, rolling out the scroll of Isaiah and seeing that 150 years before you were born, your name was already mentioned as the person that would have compassion and mercy on God's people. Folks, do you think it was by accident everything that God was working in the lives of his people? He was working and moving in a power and miraculous way to bring them to the place where he wanted them to be. And listen, it wasn't by accident. Second Chronicles chapter 36, we see Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36. Look at verses 22 and 23. I'll read these to you. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. That word by Jeremiah was this. You guys will be in captivity for 70 years. He named the exact length that they would be away in captivity. Okay, the Lord did what? He stirred the heart or stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Who did it? Is it up there? All right, good deal. Who did, whose hearts, who did, who did the stirring up of his heart? The Lord stirred his heart. Notice what happened. That he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. Who gave it to him? The God of heaven. How does he know that? Evidently, there were some Jewish people that taught him about the one true God. Notice. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all this people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. God can work in the heart of a pagan king to begin to move to allow him to release the people that were his slaves to go back and to rebuild a city for God's name, to rebuild his temple for his people that were in discipline before, but now that we're going to be set free. Guys, when you look at something like that, is there anything that's too difficult for God? Listen, folks, things like this should encourage you. I don't know what you go through in life, but listen, if God can move the heart of a pagan king, there's absolutely nothing that he can't do. And listen, I don't think that that was something that Nehemiah was going to take lightly. Not only was this king going to allow them to go back, you know who was going to fund all of it? The king of Persia was going to give them the resources to do it. Not only was God moving in the heart of a pagan king, but he said, God commanded me to allow this temple to be rebuilt, the walls to be rebuilt. Hey, listen, folks, when God calls you to a task, he can work out all the details. Amen. You don't have to have all the answers. He has his provision. He has all of his resources. He can move in the hearts of a king and make it move any direction he wants it to. Listen, that ought to build your faith. 
And folks, that's why we pray. That's why we pray. Now, what happened was, is that there was three different returns. You'll look in your, uh, if you look on the back at your little chart that I gave you, you don't have to look at it, but if you do, bless you. All right, so first person was this. The first person that led the return was Zerubbabel. He led it in 536 BC. I told you he was from the lineage of Christ. Uh, He focused on rebuilding the temple. Now, the second person that uh, led uh, the next group was a guy by the name of Ezra. He led the second return. It was nearly 80 years later after Zerubbabel. And he focused on rebuilding the spiritual lives of the people. Now, after that, another 13 years later was the third return led by the man named Nehemiah, his focus was going to be on rebuilding the walls to be able to protect the people from the outside forces. Okay, folks, so if you look on your chart, that's where the book of Nehemiah is. That's where we began. Now, folks, I wanted you to see all of that so you know the background. Hey, who was the one that was bringing them back? The Lord was moving to bring them back. Listen, it's almost as if you could look at it and you can see the very fingerprint of God moving history in order to bring them back to the place that was the land he promised to give them. Now, as we look at this, I want you to notice the situation. We've, uh, we've looked at the history and what's happened. The people are vulnerable and God begins to stir in the heart of Nehemiah. Your people are in Jerusalem and they have no walls. Folks, one of the greatest things that we ever need is people that have a burden. The thing I love about Nehemiah is that he's an ordinary person. If you look up his lineage, you look up his, the name of his father, Hekeliah, I don't, I can't, I, you can't, it's a tough name to even pronounce. You look up his family history, you know what we know about his family? Zero. It's almost as if he quickly comes onto the pages of the scripture And it's like, where in the world did he come from? He's a nobody. But God specializes in using nobodies because it brings him glory. Now, I want us to see Nehemiah the man. When you look throughout the book of Nehemiah, you'll notice that he has three different positions throughout the book. And I want us to cover those because I think it's important for us to understand how God had put this man at this place for a special time. Do you believe that God sovereignly works it out for specific people to do specific things? Have you read the Bible? I'm joking. All right, so uh, here's the thing. Uh, Not only had God sovereignly worked it out to bring the people back to Jerusalem, God's also working another 890 miles away in a palace in Sushan, all right, where uh, the king of Persia is at, and God's working it out for one Jewish man to be at the very specific place for a very specific time, for a very specific reason, to begin to orchestrate the events that God wants to take place. Now, uh, that's why you look at this book and you say, this is no accident. You remember, who knows what Nehemiah's job was? The very first thing, don't cheat and look at your notes. All right. So um, the very first job that Nehemiah had was what? He was a cupbearer. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. I told you that he's heard the news about his people. The fact that they have no walls, they're vulnerable. They could be taken out by the enemy. 
Nehemiah knew that wasn't God's plans. So look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. This is what it says. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now your ear be attentive to, my, to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. You hear the words of his heart? Lord, I'm begging for you. I know that you put me in the palace for this specific time, for this specific moment, to do a specific task. And my prayer is, Lord, would you give me success as I bring the needs of my people before this pagan king? Do you, do you, can you imagine what he had at stake? If the king looked at what he was doing unfavorably, it would have been very possible for him to just be executed. You want to leave your job in the palace as a cupbearer, and you want to go and you want to work on a wall for these people? And notice, I want you to look at the very next thing, verses uh, 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, look down at verses uh, two, through, 2 and 4, 2 through 4 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Look at what happens. And he says, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art sick, art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And then I was very sore afraid, and I said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad, when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste? And the gates thereof are consumed with fire. He's saying, why shouldn't I be sad when the place where my fathers were buried is totally in waste? It's devastated. Look at verse 4. Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. You ever had a conversation like that? Lord, give me the words to say. I don't know exactly what I should say right now. Listen, the whole thing had been set up by God. He's the cupbearer. You might be sitting here thinking, well, what, what big, what, that's not a big deal to be a cupbearer. It's like a dishwasher. No, really, a cupbearer in their day is far different. Did you know that a cupbearer in the times, and those times, was like the king's most valued counselor? The cupbearer had the most important job in the whole country. That was what? Taste the king's food, taste his drink, make sure it's not poison. If not, you're out of a job. All right? And so that happened a lot. And here we see that, uh, that, that Nehemiah is placed within the king's palace. He tasted his food. He had a closest bond with the king outside of the king's wife. He had the closest bond with the king. As a matter of fact, in those days, a lot of times that there would be people that would give the, uh, the cupbearer money to be able to bring special requests before the king. Because he was always uh, having meals with the king, always talking with the king, people would give him extra money to bring up special issues about what was going on in society in order to get him to move on it. And see, here's this guy that's right there, and I want to read to you what one author wrote. He said this, in ancient oriental courts was always a person of rank and importance. From a confidential nature of his duties and frequent access to the royal presence, he possessed great influence. And here, in the middle of his great influence, God put him there to make a special request. 
King, would you allow me to go back and to rebuild the walls of my people? God put him at the right place at the right time. As first of all, the cupbearer. His second job was this. It was Nehemiah the builder. Nehemiah the builder. When he came to Jerusalem, this man had incredible leadership ability. Incredible leadership ability. When he showed up, he didn't come and show up and say, I'm in charge. The king gave me all this money. I can just rebuild walls. He didn't do that. He showed up and look at chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says this. And so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. He spent three days. And now look down at verse 12. And I arose in the night, and I and some a few men with me, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast I rode upon. What's he talking about? At night, he would wake up and he would begin to ride his his horse around the walls to begin to analyze what was happening, what the problem was for their city. He began to survey it, to look at the problem, what was going on. He wasn't too quick to open his mouth. He wanted to pray and ask God to give him wisdom first. Now look down at verses 17 through 18. And so it says this, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we may be no more a reproach. And then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. He began to cast a vision to bring the people together. He began to tell them about how God's hand had been upon him while he was in the king's palace. You think the people in Jerusalem would have been fired up and excited about that? Hey, guys, we're going to be rebuilding this wall, and guess what? The king's paying for all of it. I'm using somebody else's credit card. This is great. All right, and so that's exactly what he's saying. And then chapters uh, 3 through 5 describes the work that they accomplished uh, against great odds, impossible odds. God begins to bring all the people together. And listen, folks, within 52 days, they rebuild, rebuild the walls, something they couldn't do in the previous 60 years. And in the end, you know what they say? Everybody looked at the walls that were rebuilt, and you know what they said? Surely God is with this people. I mean, doesn't that fire you up? Man, more than anything, you know why we pray and why we want to get on the same page and why we want to work together as a church? We want people in our surrounding areas to look at what God does in our church and say, you know what? Surely God's with that people. That's what we need. And listen, God was working and moving in all of this And so you see that he was, first of all, a cupbearer. Second of all, he was a builder. The third thing was this. He was a governor. The people elected him in Nehemiah chapter 5 to lead the people. And now I'm going to have to bring this around really quickly, all right? So stick with me. Put your seatbelt on. We're going to get through this, all right? So Nehemiah chapter 7. Look at verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when the wall was built... And I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I gave my brother Hanani 
and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, and he feared God above many. So what he begins to do is set up the leadership of the country. And listen, folks, what kind of people was it that he chose? Faithful people that feared the Lord. Listen, you know what we need more than anything? We need people that will be put in leadership positions that are of spiritual nature, people that fear God, people that love the Lord. And that's what he began to do in the city. He's setting up the structure so that they can begin to grow. Now notice, look down at chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. And I love this part. Let me actually, let's, let's go to chapter 8. Look at verse 5. He instructs Ezra, the prophet, to do, uh, the priest, uh, to do something very important. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. What were they doing? They were reading God's word. They had formed a wooden pulpit. If you look in the passage, you know where the pulpit came from? came from this, from the book of Nehemiah. When Ezra stood up, they built up a wooden structure where he would stand up above the people and he would begin to read the scripture. You know why pastor has you guys stand up and you guys like grunt every time he does it? I'm just joking. All right, and, and he, you know why he has you stand up? The book of Nehemiah, all of them stood. Now listen to how long they stood. They from, from morning until noon. They listened to the scriptures be read. They broke up into groups and they discussed what was read in their hearing and they began to explain to them what the word was that they had just heard. That's the first small groups you see in the scripture. <laughs> True. And so folks, it says in the passage, and I love this, you look down at verse nine, and Nehemiah, which is the tertia, let's see here, am I right one? Yeah, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, it says, In Nehemiah, which is of Tertia, and Ezra, the priest of uh, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. I want you to picture that day as Ezra began to read God's word, the people began to cry. Why is that? They're remembering what their nation used to be back, be like back in the day. You see, a lot of them have been born in captivity. They had only been told about what it was like to be in Jerusalem, and they're hearing God's word read, and you know what? God's beginning to impress upon their hearts. Hey, God's moving. He's working. He's restoring us back to what he wants us to be. And, and the signs of God began to work and to move. The, their, their lives were getting right with God. God was beginning to put his stamp of approval on them again. And their hearts were being reunited with the Lord. Their hearts were growing. And, and they, they, they had this excitement that God was in their midst all over again. Folks, that's incredible. And I love, you look down at verses, Nehemiah chapter 13. And I want you to see this. And then I'm going to close this down. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 13. This is towards the end of the book. Notice verses 30 and 31. He says this. Thus cleansed I them from all the strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business. They, they moved out all the foreigners. They began to cleanse themselves from it because it was because of the foreigners that they had drifted into idolatry. Now look at verse 31. 
and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits. And notice what he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. God, will you remember the work that you did through me? A man at the end of his life, he says, God, would you just remember what you did amongst this people? Nehemiah was the man of the hour, this ordinary man with no background, not even a Levite, nobody knows his background. God taps him on the shoulder of a, while he's in a palace and he leaves the plush lifestyle of a palace and leaves it to go to a, a city with broken down walls. And he says, God, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be whatever it is that you need me to be. If you need me to be a cupbearer, I'll be a cupbearer. Lord, if you need me to build up walls, I'll build walls. Lord, if you want me to, to be a governor of a city to build up the leadership of this city, I'll be that. I'll be whatever it is that you need me to be. Just use me however you see fit, but remember me for good. Man, what a powerful name. What a powerful person that God used. Now, let me give you some application because we don't ever study God's word just to study it. We wanna see how it applies to our life. I want you to notice this. Think in your own life. What are broken down walls in your life that need to be rebuilt? You know, I've, I've found it in, in church ministry that there's a lot of believers out there that have broken down spiritual walls that need to be built. In Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16, it says this. I love this verse. He says, can a woman forget her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? It means, can a mom forget her child that she breastfeeds? No. Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. Behold, I've graven you upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. You know what he says? You people are like walls in front of me. That's an interesting concept. I've never heard people referred to as walls. But here in this passage, it's almost as if those broken down walls around Jerusalem can be the spiritual condition of people many times. And folks, listen, if you've known believers long enough, you recognize that sometimes we have cracks in our walls, don't we? We have weeds that sprout up. And before long, those cracks, they begin to get bigger. And before long, a wall can be knocked over, right? It never happens overnight. We see that God begins to point out the fact that they're, they're the spiritual condition of the people. And I think that God is looking specifically at us and he says, are there things in your own life that need to be rebuilt? Are there walls that need to be mended and fixed? It happens when we begin to stop praying. We begin to stop seeking the Lord. We, we stop getting in God's word. And before we know it, rebellion occurs, compromise happens, and before we know it, sin takes over our lives, and our lives cease having fruit that's being borne out spiritually from our life. Maybe today, the broken down walls might be your own spiritual life. But listen, I think there's a secondary thing that we could look at. You know the moment is always ripe for a Nehemiah. We need men Men of God that are going to stand up and they're going to be an example, a testimony of what it's like to seek the Lord. The, these are the type of people that they see broken things and they seek to fix it. 
when it's easy to run from it. They're men that see the walls that need to be rebuilt up and they, they motivate people and push people to, to see the, the, these things accomplished for the God's glory. Every generation needs ordinary people who are willing to restore and rebuild broken things. God rebuilds broken things. Look at verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu, that would have been November or December, in the 20th year, I, as I was in Shushan, the palace, Nehemiah wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a member of the priestly tribe. He didn't have royal blood in his veins. He had no spiritual heritage, no physical strength, no leadership experience. But God began to press upon his heart a burden, and he began to seek out how he might fulfill God's mission for his life. He was just an ordinary, run-of-the-mill person. And you know how he impacted Judah? Listen, folks. It was through character. Through character. You see, the church today is most needy hour uh, in trying to impact its culture. We try to impact our culture with clever methods. And God will impact the world with Christian character. That's how God impacts his world. While the church is looking for better methods, God's looking for better men. Ordinary people that will rise up and listen to God's calling on their life. And God will allow them to move to action. Listen, let me just kind of close with this thought. You know that at the same time that Nehemiah was being called to rebuild those walls, Aristophanes was moving people with his brilliant plays. You had people like Herodotus, who was writing fascinating history. Plato and Socrates, they were moving worlds with, of thought with their philosophy. And why not bring one of them into the fold and use them to lead people because they're brilliant. God doesn't use the mighty. God doesn't use the ones that we would pick. God picks ordinary people that sense God's purpose and calling upon their life and they're available and they're ready to move. Folks, listen tonight as we've covered the book of Nehemiah as we try to get your hearts ready for it. I hope your hearts are gonna be stirred and ready to receive the example that we have in front of us with Nehemiah. Let me just tell you this. First of all, what you need to have tonight is a burden. Would you ask God to burden your heart for something? For people? There's broken people all around us. Would you ask God to give you a burden just like he gave Nehemiah? Second of all, would you begin to pray for God's guidance and his protection? God, would you work and move to see this accomplished? How about this? Would you begin to face the situation honestly and begin to work at things in the church and in your life and in our culture and in our community? Would you work until you see the, the task accomplished? But most of all, we need to recognize that we can't correct the condition alone. We need God's help. You want to know the most powerful thing that I see in the life of Nehemiah is this. Was Nehemiah great? Was there anything that stood out about him? Not particularly. What I love about Nehemiah was that he was a weak man that was placed and used in the hands of a very powerful God. And listen, folks, we need more Nehemiahs in our day and age. Amen. Folks that will be burdened and move to action because God still works like that. He still moves. 
Let's just bow our heads and prepare our hearts. Maybe you're here this evening and maybe God's begin to stir your heart. For maybe your church, maybe it's your community, maybe it's a ministry that God wants you to be a part of. Would you just begin to even pray maybe that God would even start to challenge and stir your heart for this series of 